Good afternoon, and welcome to the Middle East Forums webinar and podcast series, Israel Insider with Ashley Perry. I'm Stacey Roman, and I will be moderating this discussion today. We are pleased to have Ashley Perry, advisor to the Middle East Forums Israel office, join us here each week to update us on all the events going on in Israel. Mr. Perry will be giving us a briefing on current Israeli affairs for 15 minutes, then open it up for questions. Should you wish to ask a question, please use the Q&A box located at the bottom of your screen to type your question. And with that, I'll turn the discussion over to Mr. Ashley Perry. Thank you very much, Stacey, and good evening from Israel. Um, if you see my eyes wander during um, the next half an hour, it's because uh, really the biggest news is happening uh, as I speak. Um, just about uh, 20 or so minutes ago, uh, President Herzog uh, released what he calls a compromise, the outline for a compromise on the judicial reform issue. It's something which he claims he's been working with weeks. He's met thousands of Israelis. Um, he did start his uh, remarks by saying, you know, really giving a, uh, a pessimistic view of where we are today as a society, saying that anyone who believes that we, you know, we, we could be on a, a we, we, there's no way we can be on a brink of a civil war, uh, hasn't really seen, um, what I've been seeing, the words that I've been hearing. Um, so really uh, starting off with a very serious note, uh, saying that there's, you know, this is, this is the moment where we all have to compromise, we will have to act maturely, we have to put aside our political differences and find uh, an answer for this issue. He said it is not his outline uh, for, uh, for compromise and judicial reform. He described it regularly as the people's outline. Um, as he said, you know, it's, it's a result of his consultations, not just with politicians on both sides, but civic leaders, business leaders, uh, former political leaders, judicial uh, experts, etc., uh, etc. Et um, there had been talk early in the day, or at least in the few hours leading up to it, what was going to be the reaction. There were rumours that there was a, 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 a major disagreement between Prime Minister Netanyahu and Justice Minister Yerub Levine, with the latter taking a far more hardline approach and uh, basically saying this, this, these were the rumours that uh, Netanyahu wanted to accept uh, the recommendations of the president and the Justice Minister basically saying no which led a lot of people to speculate who is really running the show at this point. What we do know is that Prime Minister Netanyahu has delayed his trip. He's supposed to be going on an official diplomatic visit to Berlin. He was supposed to leave, I believe, uh, five o'clock in the afternoon, and uh, he's now scheduled to leave at 10. Perhaps it will be longer, perhaps. Who knows what will happen? Uh, similarly, Pizarro Smotrich, finance minister, uh, and the leader of the party with Simcha Rotman, who's really leading the judicial reform inside the Knesset, uh, has decided to cut his visit short from the US. He was uh, scheduled to go to Panama and meet with um, uh, some leaders of Latin America, some business leaders, et cetera, et cetera, where he's decided to come back. So, you know, it, it, is, it is a crucial moment. Uh, in the end, um, what uh, President Herzog actually did release, and I... I went through it very, very briefly because of uh, time constraints, um, but it's, it certainly is not one that the uh, proponents of the judicial reform as envisioned by Levine and Rotman will readily accept. The main point, and, and, and I'd like to go into this a little bit further, there are different issues which affect different parts of the coalition. 
Uh, Yerov Levine's main, main bugbear in this is the Judicial Appointments Committee. He wants uh, a majority for the coalition to be able to choose the next Supreme Court justices, similar um, in effect to what, what happens in the US, where the executive, uh, to a large extent, I don't know, please you know, correct me on it, I don't know the exact uh, 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 you know, proceedings, but to a certain extent, um, the executive, the president, I, I'm not sure exactly, uh, decide on the maker on on the new positions on the Supreme Court. Well, uh, Yeruv Levine wanted to have a majority in the eleven seat panel, uh, and that for him is the biggest issue. Some that I spoke to in the Knesset earlier in the week said, really, that's all he really cares about. And the Herzog outline does not meet this in any way, shape, or form. In fact, it basically uh, maybe even goes further back than the situation we have today. Um, so it's uh, this idea that uh, Netanyahu and Levine had a blowout about it probably doesn't ring as true when you actually see the outline itself, because it's highly unlikely uh, that Netanyahu would accept a situation which was either similar today or perhaps even a little bit worse, where one thing is sure, according to these outlines, they, the government would not have a majority to be able to choose uh, the next Supreme Court justices. So that, um, you know, the outline doesn't really speak to many of the concerns uh, that the government have, whether you agree with them or not. I'm just, I'm just trying to uh, analyze it. Uh, probably uh, is closer to where the opposition are. Again, I, I've been trying to make this point. The opposition, many members of the opposition, I should say, are not necessarily against judicial reform. And many of them, Lieberman, Gidon Saar, and some others, have actually tried to lead reforms or at least release their own outlines in the past. So they're not against the idea of reform. They're against uh, the extreme measures, as they would say, uh, that the government is trying to implement with this uh, judicial reform. And, and this is where uh, it's actually, the needle is actually moving back towards the Likud. They're, what they're most worried about is the pace of this, that it's happening so quickly that there's no real debate. Some would argue, and there have been voices who have said this, even within Likud, there, haven't been a there hasn't been a debate on this. This is something which has been very much led from the top, um, and the rank and file of the Likud have not really got on board. What worried several uh, Likud MKs in leaked recordings from a, a faction meeting this week is that they are losing the public trust. And according to Mickey Zohar, um, they would do very badly if there were to be elections in the near future. They have not made their case, and that I think everyone can agree on. The coalition, the government, Yeruv Levine, even Simcha Rotman, even though he's been doing interviews across the board in the last few days or even a few weeks, have not done a good enough job in convincing the people. And we see these demonstrations day after day um, that basically uh, shows that the opposition to the reforms are winning the day, are winning the public uh, support. And there's going to be another day of rage tomorrow. There was partly demonstrations today. There, there's barely a day that uh, goes without some group uh, uh, sending a petition, someone uh, you know, holding up a motorway, highway somewhere. Um, so they're, they're really losing uh, the PR battle. And the, there are people in the Likud who are very worried about it. Danny Danon and Yuli Edelstein are the two most prominent members within the Likud who are most dismayed by this. But as I said last week, these are two members who are pretty much on the outs. 
as far as uh, uh, Netanyahu, so it's easier for them to say, but they both have said that they're not the only ones in the Likud who are uncomfortable about the pace, even though the majority of Likud supporters, the majority of Likud uh, members of Knesset are, are proponents of, if not all, most of what is happening, they're certainly worried by the backlash, they're certainly worried by their lack of counsel uh, towards this, and, and I think we're hearing more and more voices. Interestingly, Yuli Edelstein absented himself uh, from the two votes, the two important votes, um, I believe it was uh, on Monday, uh, on, on aspects of the judicial reform. Uh, and he's actually been sanctioned now by the Likud. That's clearly to send a message to those who would um, absent themselves or perhaps even think about voting against some aspects of the reform. It's clear that they could want to keep everyone in line as much as possible. Um, it's clear that Edelstein himself was in the Knesset. He had no particular reason not to be in the Knesset because he then uh, uh, put up his own law and he appeared immediately when his own law, which was to cancel that part of the disengagement law, remember the disengagement from uh, from Gaza in 2005, also included elements of the northern Samaria, the northern West Bank, and he uh, specifically wrote a law that would cancel, cancel that particular aspect. We're talking about a few uh, relatively small uh, settlements in the northern part of the West Bank, uh, the Samaria, northern Samaria, and this is something he touted, this is a law that he put up, and he suddenly was there, and a lot of people commented on it. Uh, uh, the Likud tried to paint Edelstein as moving left, and Edelstein himself made a joke that, yeah, he's moving so much left, he's trying to cancel the disengagement and mentioning or hinting at some of his colleagues who are, who are attacking him, who voted back in the day for the disengagement. So all is not well in the Likud, that, that's for sure. Um, what, I, what, what is clear, again, I, I talked about the fact that um, uh, Yerov uh, Levine is very interested on the aspect of judicial reform, which gives the government, the coalition, uh, power, uh, veto, whatever you want to call it, on the Judicial Appointments Committee. The most important thing for the ultra-Orthodox, the Haredi party, specifically the Ashkenazi United Torah Judaism, is the ability to have an override clause, which means that any law uh, cannot be overridden uh, if it receives a 61 majority, cannot be uh, overridden, or at least a basic law, I should say, uh, which you can make it, you know, you can call any law basic law, and then it cannot be overridden by the Supreme Court. For them, it is an absolute uh, a, a red line. Uh, they also want to make sure that it's a law that only has a 61 majority, which means a basic majority. There have been all sorts of calls for 65, for 70. They say basic laws, because of their quasi-constitutional nature, should be uh, issues which cross aisles, which are, you know, multi-party agreements, uh, of 70 seats, maybe even 80 seats, but the fact there's only 61 means that any coalition can just call a law a basic law and it cannot be overridden. Why do the ultra-Orthodox want this? Because they want to ensure that laws, which are of great interest to them over the years, like the ability to ensure that yeshiva students, ultra-Orthodox yeshiva students, do not have to serve in the army. Like, for example, perhaps uh, laws on religion and state, perhaps it's the Kotel understandings you know, uh, you know, ensure that the rabbinut has full control over uh, marriage, even more so than they do today, uh, over all, uh, all these other aspects. And what's driving uh, a lot of the, uh, uh, you know, the uh, opposition to compromise are the ultra-Orthodox. Interestingly enough, 
uh, I think this is a, a strategic mistake from a public relations point of view, but there was for the first time uh, demonstrations outside the, one of the leaders of the ultra-Orthodox party, Moshe Gaffney in Bnei Brak. And the one community that can bring out massive numbers very, very quickly are the ultra-Orthodox, and they immediately surrounded the demonstrators, threw stuff at them and called them all sorts of names. And to uh, arouse the ire of the masses in the ultra-Orthodox world probably is a bit of a strategic mistake for some of the people who decided to do it, but uh, we'll, we'll see exactly how that goes. One thing that was really striking to me uh, when I was in the Knesset earlier in the week, I spoke to some members of the opposition, again, many of them right-wing, many of them who support some sort of reform. They really did speak in extremely pessimistic terms. One MK said to me, which I think is a little bit extreme, but just gives you an idea of the pessimism, is he said, maybe this, we're talking about the beginning of the end of the state of Israel. Now, again, you know, this is in the middle of things and he's hearing all sorts of dire predictions, but this was his own feeling that, you know, this will change the face of the state of Israel. And some of the laws that will be able to be passed um, will be, you know, will, will be irreversible. Perhaps the rift in Israeli society will be irreversible. Uh, and I think that's what a lot of people on the right, or let's say on the moderate right, um, are starting to think that, again, they're not against much of what's being attempted. They believe that, you know, what's on the table is too extreme, but they're not against the concept of judicial reform, but they do believe that it is tearing our society apart. And that was best enunciated by uh, President Herzog uh, earlier. Uh, on another arguably related note, we will never know if it's completely related, there was a security incident earlier in the week. What transpires and the details have not been revealed completely is earlier in the week, someone, an individual, passed from Lebanon into Israel. And for at least a day or two, uh, they couldn't find this individual. Uh, what he was able to do is he was able to plant uh, an ex explosive device uh, at Megiddo Junction, and it did seriously injure one person, I believe a motorist who was passing at the time of the explosion, uh, who's, uh, I don't know if he's fighting for his life, but he's considered seriously injured in hospital. It took quite a while, maybe even another day, for the army to find the individual. They, they found him in a car going back towards the Lebanese border, and they were able to what's called neutralize him. And, and I'm pretty sure that they, they shot him dead, but he was wearing an, uh, an explosive belt uh, at the time. What most people are suggesting, if he came from Lebanon, it's either by Hezbollah or with Hezbollah's blessing. Some are saying that Hamas have actually created a bit of a presence in some of the Palestinian refugee camps in Lebanon and in the south of the country. So it's not inconceivable it could be Hamas, but all fingers are pointing at uh, Hassan Nasrallah. The, uh, the Secretary General uh, of uh, Hezbollah. And what some are suggesting is perhaps this was Nasrallah's way uh, to try and see if he could tear Israeli society further apart. If we remember only, what was it, a few days ago, a week or so ago, Nasrallah gave a, a big speech uh, saying that he does not believe that Israel will reach its 80th birthday. He believes that these societal cracks that are happening over the judicial reform issue uh, speak to the beginning of the end of Israel, mirroring to a certain extent, as I said, um, the speech which I which I heard uh, earlier, in the, uh, earlier in the week in the Knesset. But what is clear is Nasrallah uh, does see that perhaps it's a time to strike. Perhaps he does see weakness. 
And now the uh, security cabinet and security officials are debating exactly what the response uh, should be. There are those who are saying that at the moment, if we do not respond forcibly uh, to Hezbollah, then uh, we will lose a large amount of our deterrence because uh, the, the, you know, if they say that the, all the fingerprints will be by uh, Hezbollah and our response will be weak, it will just play into that narrative that Israel is uh, substantially weakened, is getting weaker by the minute, and maybe it's the time for Nasrallah to try something even greater. So this is a bit of the debate. The other thing, uh, the northern residents were a little bit angry, it seems, uh, at the, uh, the security forces, the IDF and others, that they saw them running around the north, there were all sorts of pictures taken, videos taken. It was clear that something was going on, but the northern residents themselves were not uh, put in the picture. And, and there's quite a lot of dissatisfaction about the fact that they were kept in the dark, obviously for security reasons, but still, and the fact that it took so long to find these individuals. Um, so there's, you know, there's quite a lot going on in Israel. And with that, I'm happy to answer any questions on any of those issues or anything else. All right. Thank you so much. Uh, so the first one is, uh, if the pace is, uh, is such a issue, what exactly is the arguments for continuing to, to further, to go further over taking time to take, to do the discussions and what exactly is driving this pace? Well, um, th there's a few things that are driving the pace. There is a belief by the proponents, by Levine, by Waterman, by others who believe that if they don't do it now, um, it will not happen. Uh, there'll be great pressures, as we've seen, internationally, diplomatically, politically, socially, societally, from the security cabinet. We're now starting to hear quite raising voices of people who said that they will not turn up for their annual army service, um, what's called Milouim in Israel. Uh, and there's, you know, there's been talk of uh, taking money out of Israel by some of the investment firms, high tech companies leaving the country, et cetera, et cetera. So there is this belief that it's not if it's not done now. Uh, something will will come up and will be, it'll be put off. It, you know, the can will be kicked uh, down the road. Also, there is coming up in the next few months, I believe, um, a very important. I think there's one or two justices who's uh, Supreme Court justices who will be retiring, so there will be vacancies. So they want to try and change the appointments committee ahead of that because at the moment uh, the government will not have the majority, so they will not be able to put their people. Uh, on the uh, on, on the committee, uh, on the Supreme Court bench, I should say, uh, so that they consider that quite important. But the main reason is, is because they believe the fastest, if they can catch everyone unawares and without having to compromise, then you have to do it pretty quickly. And there was always this timetable of trying to do it before the Pesach uh, break, which is coming up in two weeks. I think it's the April the 2nd, and they're gonna try and get through the second and third readings, which usually come together uh, in the next two weeks. All right, thank you for that. Uh, Doris Rose Strauss asks, uh, do people like Smotrich, uh, Ben Greer, Levin, et cetera, have any respect at all for President Herzog? Uh, essentially, will this outline be taken seriously? I mean, I'm, I'm sure they do have respect for the president. He's the, you know, he's the uh, uh, titular head of the country, but he's, he's a figurehead. You know, he doesn't really have any political power. He has the ability to be seen as a figurehead. You know, even this is, you know, arguably the position of president. There have been presidents who have not gone involved in politics at all. There are those who got a little bit more involved. Some would point to Shimon Peres as an example of the latter. 
Um, but Herzog feels that it's important enough that as the president, he should hear the voice of the people. Uh, it's the moment where he's got to step up and try and find some sort of outline, some sort of compromise, some sort of proposal. Um, but again, it, it, it doesn't mean they respect him any less, but if you less, but if you believe wholeheartedly in what you're doing, you know, the president has a moral voice, but does he have an override on the political level? Because at the end of the day, he's not elected by the people. The, the, the argument that we hear again and again and again from the proponents, the coalition is, we had a referendum, the people spoke. It was clear from all our manifestos that we wanted this, exactly this type of judicial reform. Uh, you know, I, I, would, I, I would like to find too many people actually read manifestos, but they would argue it was out there. And it is true, it was out there. And the fact is that they received a majority of the vote. They received 64 seats in the Knesset. And they now have the mandate uh, to rule uh, how they see fit, or to govern, I should say, uh, as they see fit. So they keep on going back to the fact that they are the democratically elected representatives of the people. The president isn't, the, Jude uh, the, the Supreme Court justice isn't, the United States president isn't, the EU isn't, the, the high-tech elites are not. Um, they would argue you can bring up uh, half a million people to the street, but we received a mandate of millions of people. Again, I'm giving that side of the, 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 the view. So I don't think it's about having respect or not respect for this individual or that group. It's about the fact that they believe that they've already received the mandate of the people and they are enacting the will of the people. That is what they believe. Interesting. Thank you. Uh, Robert Slater asked, do you foresee some compromise in the next few weeks or continued hardened positions? Um, well, at the moment, it doesn't seem like the Herzog outline, the presidential outline, as he calls the, the people's outline, uh, is really going to have the effect that he would hope. Uh, perhaps the devil is in the details. Perhaps it can become uh, a position or at least a starting point, but it would have to move quite significantly towards the government for the government to accept it because they would argue, and I've seen a few voices here and there that have already said, it doesn't really change the reality on the principal points that we wanted to reform, we wanted to change, it doesn't really uh, change anything. The interesting thing is at this moment in time, and again, it could be that while I've been online, it could be in the five, 10 minutes after, it could be tomorrow, I haven't seen any major opposition leader come out in support or otherwise. I did see Naftali Bennett, the former prime minister, come out and uh, say both the opposition and coalition should adopt it, but he's outside politics. I did see the head of the uh, labor union, the Hista Jurt, come out and say that this is a very good basis and it should be adopted. But uh, again, it could be while I'm speaking now, yeah, Lapid is commenting on it. I'm sure that they are thinking very carefully, strategically, what should their response be? I think maybe uh, we'll hear in the days ahead what the pulse of the people are on it. Um, I'm sure that it will get a certain amount of support from the opponents of judicial reform, much more than the uh, proponents at this point. So perhaps that will give us an idea of exactly uh, who is going to accept it and who's going to say it, go, it, it doesn't go nearly far enough. Absolutely. Thank you. Uh, Carrie Hillebrand asks, is it possible that Edelstein and others may break off from the Likud and either form a separate faction or join an existing party? That, that, that's a question that everybody's asking. Are there four people 
in Likud who would vote against or uh, some of the other things. I, I personally don't think so, uh, because don't forget Likud has primaries and the Likud party is still very much controlled by Netanyahu. Um, we haven't seen enough um, anger, maybe from or disappointment or rejection or opposition from Likud rank and file. All polls do show growing uh, opposition or at least opposition to the pace, but it's still a minority. Uh, and at the end of the day, the uh, members of Knesset are angry. They're angry at the reaction. They're angry at being uh, kept in the dark. They're angry about not being prepared for the opposition's response, uh, especially in the public sphere. Um, but I don't hear any anger really on the issue itself of judicial reform. And even Danon and Edelstein themselves have said that they are not opponents of reform. So I don't see uh, Danon, who's just returned to the Knesset, Edelstein, who tried to say he would be an opposition to Netanyahu and then remove that opposition officially, shows uh, all of these things show the power of Netanyahu and the fact that no one in the league could, even if they are ideologically inclined, will go against Netanyahu on this. They know that it's still relatively popular within the Likud. They still know Netanyahu is very much behind it. They know Yariv Levine, who's also an extremely popular figure, is running this whole reform. So I, I just don't think from a political or strategic point of view, uh, there'll be much to be gained um, from uh, any of the MKs. And don't forget, because of the Norwegian law, a lot of the uh, backbenchers really are entering the Knesset for the first time, and I don't see many of them uh, really raising their voices. The interestingly, the, in, the most powerful voice, perhaps, which has come out against is uh, Bibas, who's the mayor of Modi'in and the, and the head of the Federation of Municipalities, a very powerful figure, probably the most powerful figure outside of the Knesset and the Likud side. And he's been, he's taken the most moderate position. Perhaps he's calculated this is his way to differentiate himself from those in the Knesset. Uh, but he is an enormously popular figure. He is a powerful figure within Likud, even though he does not sit in the Knesset. At one point, he certainly will jump into national politics. But he's the only one really who's, who's standing to a certain extent largely in opposition. Um, but his, his vote, he doesn't get a vote because he's not a, a member of Knesset. And again, even if those two, Danon and Edelstein, decided not to vote, you still have uh, a, a pretty solid majority. So you would need at least four. I personally don't see that happening. Thank you so much. Robert Larrick asks, uh, what do you think and what is the Israeli opinion on uh, the Islamic Council's fatwa against uh, Hamas leadership in Gaza to stop the oppression over its citizens? It's interesting. It certainly caught everyone by surprise. Um, I'm not really an, an expert on inter-Muslim affairs. You know, maybe there was some politics involved. Maybe there was some power struggle involved. Certainly what is going on in Gaza is an outrage. The way the way people are treated, the way their citizens or, or residents of uh, Gaza are treated, it, it doesn't get any outside play. So even this, you know, got... Uh, some attention in Israel, but it won't be really um, making too much media uh, around the world, or at least high level. Um, I don't really know what's behind it. I don't know what led to it. I don't really know the timing, so I can't really comment beyond that. But I would say, you know, about time, and, and I hope it's the first of many voice, such voices. Thank you. And uh, do you see any relief in the demonstrations coming up, or do you think those will continue? 
I think they'll continue and, and probably get even more powerful. I think that perhaps President Herzog, perhaps that was the point of it, uh, was to maybe even focus it more that, you know, um, the opposition, there's a lot of factors uh, in the opposition. And many of the coalition or the proponents of judicial reform say that, you know, the opposition, the people who take to the streets, or at least the leaders, are not really interested in judicial reform. They're interested in changing the government. They're interested in upsetting the will of the people. This is what I, I, I hear regularly from the coalition, that, you know, th this is just an excuse. They're, they're managing to get a lot of people out of the streets because judicial reform has become extremely unpopular, and they've been able to brand it as undemocratic, authoritarian, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But what the coalition will say do say is that it's anarchists, it's people who just want to upset the democratic will of the people, the elections were held, they lost, and now they want to overturn it. Um, but I think uh, President Herzog's outline will give it a bit more focus. Uh, it will be branded as very reasonable, again, even though, you know, uh, just looking at it from a neutral point of view, it's pretty far from what the coalition would certainly want. But uh, certainly for the average person, it could be branded as very reasonable, as a good compromise, and the fact that the government probably won't entertain it as a realistic foundation for negotiations and compromise. Uh, the, you know, the, the nuances will be lost on the average person. So the fact that the government will be seen as thumbing their nose or you know, spitting in the eye, if you want to go a little bit more extreme uh, of, of the president, will be something that will be used by the opposition to gain even more support. And, that, and I think we'll, we'll see a continued amount of demonstrations and perhaps even uh, an upping of the numbers, of the, of the levels, uh, and even, you know, we've been promised surprises uh, in the days to come. Oh, wow. All right. Well, thank you so much for that analysis. Uh, we've come to the close of our webinar and podcast. Ashley, thank you again for taking time to update us this thank week. You. For our viewers and listeners, please join us Friday at 1 p.m. Eastern for a webinar with Nima Golan, Golam Ali discussing Sweden's crisis of unchecked immigration. Thank you all for joining us, and I hope you have a wonderful day.